Welcome to the Drummer's Pathway, the podcast about music, life, and the creative process. Hello, I'm Michael Scott, and welcome to the Drummer's Pathway podcast. On this episode, my guest is Jim Toscano, a New York-based drummer who is widely respected as an educator and technology expert. He is also the author of the successful drum method book, Filling in the Grooves. He is known for his commitment to staying current with the changes in technology and has a passion for education. Jim has assisted many of the industry's top drummers set up successful online teaching practices. We talk about the importance of embracing technology as part of the new era of online education. We also talk about finding joy in the creative process as a recording musician and why it's essential to stay active and encouraged even when you're facing challenges. Let's get started. So Jim, as always, it's an absolute pleasure to connect with you and I really appreciate you being on the show today. Um, man, it's, so it's been kind of a long time coming and, um, I appreciate you asking me first of all. And, um, and Michael, I think you and I met through probably through Dom. Absolutely. Over, over the, uh, technical, uh, consultation kind of Avenue probably. Right. Um, I'm thinking, I mean, I'm, I'm not even sure, but I think that was when we first met, right? Yes, that's correct. I was having a lesson with, with Dom Familiero, uh, probably two or three years back, and I had some technical questions, and he basically said, Jim Toscano, he's the man, you need to connect with Jim. So I fired off an email, and I had a technical consultation with you, and it's been a, a fantastic experience. So you have a great reputation as being a top-notch educator and, and a drum educator, but you also have a reputation in the industry as being a leader in technology, and you've done some technology coaching for many people in this organization, um, including myself, and it's been an absolute pleasure to have someone who is so connected to this and really has a passion for helping to build this community and really helping to make the whole online education programs work as seamlessly as possible because we run into so many challenges with all of these technical aspects, particularly at the beginning of the pandemic, that sometimes it's nice to have someone that can kind of guide you through all of this stuff. Yeah, 100%. I think, you know, it's funny. Um, I've been toying with this technical stuff for so long and really Dom Familara um, planted that seed, right? Because he was really the first guy. I mean, he's probably was the first drum teacher to teach online back when it was dial up. Um, he always mentions, you know, that he used to do the dial up thing and it was, you know, it was painful, but it worked and he was able to teach people across the globe. And so that kind of planted the seed for me um, to look into teaching online. So, you know, I started buying little pieces of gear that would connect me to the internet and running cameras through a security switcher and, you know, all this rough kind of stuff. And then I was like, oh, I can actually run my mixing board into the back of the security switcher and bring in all the mics on my drum kit. So I figured that out. Once I got the sound in there, I was like, this could really become something 
more. And then I added more cameras. And so I was using like a very raw setup with a security switcher with four cameras and, you know, my, my Pro Tools audio at the time. And, uh, and then I said to Dom, I was like, man, Dom, I said, I took your idea of um, recording the video to a, to a DVR and I expanded it with a switcher and my mixing board and got it up on the internet. And he was like, Oh, you wait, you have to do that for me. He's like, you can't just have that. So I went out to Dom's and I said his setup, mm-hmm. you know, with, uh, with a switcher and the whole thing. And that's kind of how it started. And that was many years ago, maybe like 2010 around maybe 2009 or, or 2010, maybe before. Um, but then, you know, I started to every year perfect it a little bit more, change out some gear, you know, trying to get into a, a production switcher for the cameras. Um, and all of this really to push my drum education to another level. You know, I was constantly thinking like, how can I present myself to students that are, you know, across the, the country or in other states and really bring it at a high level. So, uh, and of course, you know, I always bring it back to Dom. He was the, this planting that seed of like, we need to elevate. He was always saying, you know, we need to, um, inspire people to aspire and yes. however, however we do that, you know, whether it's through the technology sound, um, our level of playing, constantly working at playing really, really well. So, you know, it's all connected. So, and I saw Dom last weekend for his 70th birthday, which was amazing. And, uh, and we, you know, in the pre hang today, we were talking about Rob Wallace and Liberty DeVito. Everybody was there, Bergamini. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a really nice hang. And, and we got to see really so much joy from Dom on, on his birthday. So it was, uh, given the circumstances, you know, he was full of energy, full of life, you know? So, yeah, there, there's something I find so joyful and magical about being part of the whole drum community. It's definitely sort of a brother and sisterhood. And I think more than any other instrumentalists, there's something that's just bonding about the, the whole drum community, particularly being a member of the Sabian Education Network, of which you are a very active member of that. It's also about sharing information. When you look back at the beginning of the pandemic, everyone had to pivot within about two or three days. We would be in environments where we would teach in person, we would teach in schools, then we couldn't do that anymore. And rather than shutting down our business, we had to adapt. And the problem was, is that there are so many of us who had no experience teaching online and had no place in terms of how to start this. And so I think that's one of the things that you have done exceptionally well is making yourself so accessible just to get everyone up and running. I know when I reached out to you, one of the things that I really actually appreciated was that you you sent a pre-consultation questionnaire where you would go through and you would ask about what gear do you have? What budget do you have? What are you looking to try and do? So that when we actually connected, you already knew what my plan was. You already knew what I had and you made me realize that I already had a lot of tools available to me to do this, but it built my confidence to know that I'm already have a solid starting point. And that's something that I thought was quite beneficial because one of the things 
that you find sometimes when you look into books or when you look on other online education is that everyone tells you all of the tricks are to buy everything that I've got and do everything that I need, but they don't look at your current situation. And I think that's something you do exceptionally well is that you look at everyone's individual situation, you help them determine what it is that they're really trying to do in the first place and really making that as seamless as possible. And you kind of give them a direction in terms of way that you can kind of grow and build from there. Yeah. I think, um, you know, just, I found because so many people had to do it so quickly and everybody is on completely different budgets. And so I realized very quickly, I better put together a form where I gather some information up front because I would start gathering the information in the consultation. And then I was getting so busy with guys reaching out that I was like, man, I'm never going to be able to keep up with all this. So I started doing that sort of pre-form. And then I would, I would, um, we would make notes on that form. And then I would send the like sort of a draw a diagram or a drawing and recommended gear back because, you know, as you know, one camera, like the camera I'm looking into now, a couple thousand dollars, then this camera, you know, is a hundred bucks. It's like, yeah. I have, you know, all these different um, options. And I never wanted to tell somebody like, yeah, you can't really do it with that. I just wanted to kind of help people take their resources and make it work and get out there and start teaching. You wouldn't believe how long it took, you know, some people to get on board. It would be some guys jumped right on it and they were like, man, I'm going to do this, you know? And, and that was like, you know, somebody like Dave Weckl, he was like, I have to, I have to do this now. Like, what am I going to do? But then like a year later, I had guys going like, well, I think I should probably get my online teaching setup going. And some guys just were too overwhelmed and didn't jump right on it, you know? So it was kind of a good problem for me because it, it spread it out over a couple of years, which I'm still doing all this coaching stuff, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, because as, as you know, most drummers, we get excited about, you know, what's the next new shiny new thing. Yes. And so oftentimes, you know, I already have somebody on a setup and then they're like, you know, I think it's time to upgrade the audio or it's up time to upgrade the camera. So people start coming back around and, uh, and looking for those upgrades. But, um, I don't have too many stipulations other than, you know, you've probably heard me say, I'm not really a fan of PCs. So I tell most people like, you're going to do better with a Mac. But I was so dedicated to helping people. I went out and I bought a PC and I bought every piece of gear that would work with the PC. And so I was buying a ton of different types of gear just for the scenarios that were coming up. So I would buy stuff so that I could replicate it here for the student that was on the other end Mm -hmm. and say like, all right, I got it working. This is how we're going to do it and then give them the connection diagram or whatever had to happen. So I felt kind of after a while, like sort of responsible, like I need to help everybody get their game on with, with their teaching practices. So it, it was, you know, kind of a labor of love, but at the same time I was pivoting, I was staying super busy during the pandemic. So, you know, it was really helpful and it's continued to be now a part of my business. So I still, I'm teaching drums, you know, I would say 70% of the time and now I'm doing, tech coaching about 30% of the time. So 
Well, and I found for me, I actually love online teaching because one of the things that I found it offered to me is that I can see my students in their own environments. Yes. Whereas when you're in a specific music school situation, it's usually either an electronic drum set or um, in the case of the school that I was teaching at, we had something with mesh heads and low volume cymbals, which worked really well. But every student that would come in would be a different size they would have different preferences and so they're going through and they're adjusting things and then what i found was the problems that they were running into once we went online were how to maintain their gear how to set things um, yeah. up properly working on an ergonomic fashion i had young students they would hold up their hi-hat thing and because the hi-hat clutch became unscrewed and they didn't know how to fix it they thought it was broken so yeah by being able to watch them in their own environments, it allowed me to teach them beyond just the standard lesson. And uh, they could go through, they make little adjustments. I could tell them, you know, lower the symbol here, make an adjustment. I can teach them how to tune a drum online because they would play something. They say, oh, well, it doesn't sound right, but you don't have those abilities in a different classroom environment. So for, for me, I found it to be something that was actually incredibly beneficial. And I also found that sometimes students have been more comfortable in their own environment than yes. in more of a standard, somewhat sort of, you know, clinical teaching environment because they've got things set up in a way that works for them. So for me, I've actually really enjoyed pivoting to the online thing. Nice. Yeah. I, I think, um, you know, to what you said there, as far as maintaining gear, I still have, you know, a couple of younger students that have electronic drum kits that they just don't keep a hex key around. Mm -hmm. And the rack that everything's mounted on is constantly loose and then things are tipping over and you're just like, oh my God, please just, I'm going to send you hex keys just so that you, you tighten everything. You know, it's just so funny, you know, watching them in their own space, um, trying to keep them organized, you know, sort of, you know, students that were coming in person, you know, I made everybody sort of have a studio binder from my place with my logo on it and all the sheets were in there and we kept everything super organized as far as the music. But you know, you don't get to see them on their own kits when they're coming in here. So I would keep their music organized, but then who knows what they're playing on at home. And so, yeah, I think that was really advantageous. And, you know, as far as what you said about, you know, tuning, teaching students to tune on their own drums is great because they're actually doing it. You can't yes. sit there and turn the keys and help them. So, um, so that's a really good way for them to learn the art of tuning drums, which is, which takes some patience and some, a learning curve, you know, so. A few years back when I was still teaching in a school environment, I had a student that he would always complain about how his drums sounded. So every single week he actually brought in a different piece of his drum set and we would actually take about five or 10 minutes of the lesson to tune up that piece. And then he would go home with a snare drum. Then the next week he would come in and he'd bring a Tom and then he'd bring the following Tom. And it's so funny. And, uh, but those are often the questions that students have that they wouldn't have the opportunity to think of in a traditional um, teaching environment. So I know sometimes there are a lot of people that are intimidated about, you know, teaching in this sort of situation, but it doesn't take a lot 
to get up and running when you realize yeah. the tools are available. I'm running a three camera setup and I don't have a video switch. I'm literally running three webcams right into the USB ports on my iMac and I just go into Zoom and I just change my camera. Because right. at this point, I'm not having to change it often enough where I needed to invest in that. But people who think that you really need to have like a switcher and I, there is value to that, don't realize that you can get up and running with what you have. You just have yeah. to take the time to learn that the options and the settings. And that's something once again, that I think you've done really well is making the things that are intimidating more accessible to everyone to get them up and running. Cause that's how you learn what the right solution is. Sometimes buying all of the gear right away without actually learning what the different steps are actually can be a detriment. So it's often yeah. good to use the tools that you have available and then upgrade and grow as you can see how that can improve your situation. Well, that's why I always mention, you know, what are, what are the workflows that you're going to be doing? So, you know, one guy might say, I just teach drums. I have a few students and I'll be like, webcams are fine. You know, you probably would benefit with a small interface to get a little bit better sound. Mm -hmm. um, I always say you should have a, a vocal mic that's a voice mic that is um, dedicated. So you're not like as some guys would um, would use a talkback mic like in the EAD-10, the Yamaha unit or or some other weird <laughs> sort of in the background <laughs> vocal mic. But, you know, a dedicated voice mic is really, I think, important. And then, you know, so somebody might have just some online students, but somebody else might be saying, well, I really want to create video content and do a multi-camera shoot of me playing and edit video content for, let's say, YouTube and social media. And that's when I'm like, well, we might want to think about a switcher that has recording capability so that you have those streams of video that are really high quality. So it really depends, again on what are the various workflows. And I always talk about having the sort of multimedia drum studio, which is was my goal, so that I can be a recording drummer, I can make video content, I can teach, I can create courses, um, and, and I can do this. I could do coaching and podcasting from my desk here. So for me, the video switcher is super important. And, and anytime I've done online clinics, it's great because I can set up like a four shot of my drum kit so that somebody's able to see perhaps, you know, my overhead view, my side view and my foot cam all at the same time. So, you know, there's advantages to this stuff, you know, and, and you're right, the more bells and whistles there are, the more of a learning curve you're going to experience. So, I think it's smart to start out with what you have. You have your webcam and maybe just add that one audio piece. And then down the road, you know, as you, as you seem to find the need, you can upgrade things. But, you know, your setup works great. I mean, there's really no reason for a video switcher unless you were going to move into one of those other avenues, perhaps where you really were worried about a high quality picture or something like that. So, um, you know, there's, there's so many ways to go. The funny thing is people that seem to have the resources see the video switcher stuff and just get excited about it. And then it's like, Oh, I need that. You know? So, yeah. um, but you know, I mean, the guys like, like Garibaldi, 
you know, he uses a video switcher for teaching online, but he was also shooting videos. Weckl was shooting videos. Um, so he wanted a multicam switcher. And so, you know, the guys that are working at a very high level immediately were like, yes, I need that. I need multi multicams. I need a switcher. And then, you know, other guys that I have like yourself, maybe a couple webcams, an interface, or, you know, I've been discovering these really high quality inexpensive cameras recently. And one of them I found was because I did Joel Rosenblatt studio in, in Rhode Island and Joel played with uh, Spyro Gyro. I don't know if you're yes. yeah. with him and Michelle Camilo, as well as numerous other artists, but Joel's a great drummer. And um, he got these really inexpensive Macos cameras that have interchangeable lenses and they're focusable and they're HDMI and they're 150 bucks, like real inexpensive, you know? So he was using all of those cameras on an expensive switcher. So there's, you know, there's other ways around, you know, the budgetary uh, restraints that people have. So I think the trick is to just start and, and, and know that you can start out simply and build from there. And I think when you, when you go through the different levels, it just, it makes you appreciate each level that much more because sometimes you can jump in all the way and then everything changes and then you want to abandon your current setup and change from there i i definitely have a vision in terms of the direction that i would like to go into but right now my system is working for me but when i am looking to upgrade i will definitely be connecting with you because i've got a whole long list of questions that's cool yeah i um you know as i said i'm still doing a whole bunch of of coaching and one thing that you know one of the sort of blessings in disguise that came out of the doing all this tech stuff was I was invited to um, present at PASIC last year. So, which was great. I've, I've always wanted to do a clinic at PASIC and um, I was able to sort of promote what I do, my book, I was able to promote, I was able to, um, you know, give a nod to the companies that support me, Offset Pedals and Sabian Symbols, ProLogic Practice Pads, and, you know, kind of give a nod to the companies, Invader Sticks, all the companies that have kind of helped me along the way, as well as Blackmagic Designs for like the Switcher and, um, and Focusrite Audio, who, who has supported me for all my audio needs. And I actually... I've never seen anybody else do this, but at the, at the clinic, I gave away like a really nice interface from Focusrite. So, um, I had QR codes and people could join mm -hmm. you know, the contest and win a, win a, an interface. And I was able to present with my own drum kit with a full rack of my computer, my switcher cameras and kind of show people what I do in real time. And we split the, um, the video feed out to two big screens on the stage. So people could see it really big behind me. And, uh, just a funny story. Well, at the time it wasn't very funny, but, um, you know, I, I get my whole thing set up. I have a drum tech with me and the people from PAS, all the volunteers, they were great. They, you know, they put all my road cases up on the stage, got me ready to go. And um, I'm setting up the cameras and the sound guy comes up on stage to like bring another mic up and he kicks my, this camera that I'm looking at right now, which I know the audience can't see it, but it's like a $2,200 Sony cam with an expensive lens on it. And he kicked the tripod off of the stage four feet up. You know, you're on this high stage, 
thing goes flying to the ground. The lens breaks right off. And I was just like, you know, and I'm, I'm into meditation and mindfulness. I literally, it happened. I took a really deep breath. I said to my tech, I was like, Hey John, pick up that tripod and just put it on the back of the stage. And so my main camera was out of commission. I took a deep breath, kept going. We set up, we did the clinic. And at the end, you know, I was able to look at this thing and go, well, that's toast. But it turned out the camera was okay. And the president of PAS came up and told me he was going to buy me a new lens, whatever I needed. And I will tell you that my fear was that the sound guy would get fired. And so I didn't care about the lens. I went over to the sound guy and I said, listen, I said, you know, I know you didn't mean to do that. I was like, I just don't want you to get in trouble. I said, so, you know, if there's a problem with your boss, I said, let me talk to him. And he's like, well, my boss already knows. And, and so I kind of just was worried about the guy losing his job over it, which I talked to his boss and made sure that there was no issue. I said, yeah, it was just a lot of stuff on stage. I said, could have happened to anybody. And I never got upset about it. I just moved on, did the clinic and uh, that was it. And uh, so little unnerving when, when your main camera goes, but, uh, but that was kind of my, my intro to PASIC. So <laughs> super fun. It's all about just taking a deep breath, stepping back and carrying on and know that in the end, everything is going to work out. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone knows you as a technology consultant, um, right. definitely an industry leader for that. They also know you as an exceptionally good drum educator. One of the things that I haven't heard people ask you a lot about was you as a drummer. So I was actually curious about what's your drum story? How did that start and what brought you to where you are now? Okay. Yeah. Um, so my, first of all, you know, there's always a moment in, in everybody's story when they kind of figured out wow, this is something I think I want to do. Um, or at least planted the seed that you were interested, right? So my the first introduction to seeing drums, or one of them, was um, a good friend of mine, Chet Tabot, who's a Long Island drum teacher. He has an a amazing marching outfit called Hip Pickles. Yep. Um, and so Chet, and Chet's written amazing drum books, tons of drum books. And so his nephews lived at the end of my grandmother's driveway. Um, so the, she had a private road that went down to her house. They were at the top of the road. So I was hanging out with these two kids. That was John DeBow and Lou DeBow, Lou DeBow Jr. And that's Chet's brother's kids. And so they had drums in their house and they had a Ludwig Vistalite kit that was mixed with red and blue Vistalite drums, right? So it was a multicolored, clear, you know, colored drum set. And I was like, wow, that's so cool. So I would go down there and they both played drums and they would hit. And their uncle was Chet and their dad, uh, Lou DeBow, had like a wedding band, you know, a club date office in Long Island. And so I was kind of exposed to drums that way. And so I started playing and took some lessons. And then I had enough knowledge that we made a little band. So it was me and Lou and Johnny. Lou played piano on this thing and Johnny played trumpet and I played drums and we played it like 
the nursing home in Center Marinches, Long Island, and Chet DeBoe did sound. And so that was my first gig. I think I was 12 or maybe 11 or 12. And we played like TV show themes. And, you know, once we did that little gig, I was like, man, this is awesome. You know, like that's all I wanted to do is play drums. And, um, and so that kind of started it. And when I got to junior high school, like middle school, I was taking drum lessons with local teachers and, you know, that whole thing. And then, you know, playing in bands from a very young age, um, all these little original bands that we had and, our house was the place to practice. I had the drums down there and a PA system. And so all of our bands would practice at my house. And I kind of played in different groups. Like I wasn't always just one band. I played in a bunch of little bands and I'm talking like, you know, middle school, like sixth, seventh grade. And then by the time I got to high school, I got pretty serious about it. And um, I was sort of playing in some heavy metal bands and doing theater gigs and doing cabaret gigs and playing with singers and guitar players and just doing all this different stuff, playing clubs. I remember I had to get a note to play the bitter end in New York city that said I was, I had permission by my parents to play at the bitter end. And so, you know, started doing all these gigs. And then, uh, at a pretty young age, I started playing with mostly older folks. And so I started playing with a pop band called atomic passion that was kind of my first serious band, uh, in New York city. We we're playing all the clubs and we got a little record deal and Leo Damien produced it. And Leo Damien is the drummer that played on the song, If You Like Pina Coladas. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, so he produced our record. He brought in all these session guys to help us with our record. So Will Lee was in there. I was like, oh my God, like I saw that guy on TV. Um, and uh, John Putnam, this great guitar, New York City guitar guy. Um, at the time was playing with Madonna. So like really seasoned session folks, you know, all these singers, there was a rap group called fat boys that came in and did some rapping on a tune. And that was my first like real session. I'd been in some studios, but that was like the first real recording session where I was like, wow, this is, I really like recording. And so, you know, that kind of got me into that part of the business, you know, playing in a serious band, going out, doing lots of gigs, recording, learning that. And then I was freelancing around that and playing in like a little jazz trio and keeping the theater gigs going, you know, sort of working for colleges and regional theaters. And so I, I kept with the theater thing. And then I started going to Drummer's Collective and studying with uh, Kim Plainfield at Drummer's Collective, rest in peace, Kim Plainfield, and also Marvin Smitty Smith and studying with a bunch of guys from the collective. And then I started a fusion band. And so we started going out with the fusion group. We were playing the 55 bar in New York City, like once a month and Visiones. And I was just talking with our guitar player from that band, which is many years ago now, but um, we were playing all the New York City clubs and, uh, and sort of street festivals and all this kind of stuff. And I just kept freelancing and sort of, I thought I was going to end up on, you know, doing the Broadway thing. But the one thing that kept happening is, so I would, I would have an opportunity to ha perhaps get on a sub list mm -hmm. and I'm a lefty and you can't go into a pit and start rearranging drum kits. And I can, I could not sit on a righty kit and do anything. I would need to switch it around. And so one thing I learned pretty quickly is that like subbing on Broadway is not really going to be a good thing. And it still happens 
you know, over the last few years, someone would mention to me about doing some subbing and I'm like, I'm a lefty, you know, and then they're like, oh yeah, right. Um, Daniel Glass and I had this conversation. We were like, listen, either one of you, either you or me has to get our own show and then we'll sub for each other, (laughs) you know, as lefties. But, um, you know, I enjoyed the theater thing, but, um, you know, I really enjoyed freelancing and playing, you know, lots of different gigs. And so I had a little jazz trio, all my own little groups and always kept my foot in recording and recording with different songwriters and, you know, keeping that as part of my identity. And then, um, I, I started to do the club dates and weddings and that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I got into a couple wedding bands where those bands were so busy at the time, you know, I'm talking like, 80s into the 90s where we would do five six hits a week with those bands you're just working all the time and so i would study and practice during the week do a couple little sessions and then go play weddings so that stuff kind of took over my life at different points which is great i mean you know playing with some good musicians you know trying to keep it at a high level and always keeping my foot into a bunch of different things. You know, the theater thing, one thing that came up with that was I, I got this show where I was playing drums off Broadway. It was uh, at the Samuel Beckett theater in New York city on a show called Rasputin. And that ran for a while. So that I was, I was, you know, on staff there playing for a long time. So I couldn't do the, the club date wedding thing at that point, but uh, I was still studying at the collective. And then my daughter was born and then the show closed <laughs> and I wound up back in, you know, sort of club dates and weddings and all that stuff. Um, but always keeping original projects going. And so, you know, these days, kind of where it's taken me, I still do sessions for songwriters and musicians that call me to do tracks. And I love that. I, I do spend um, some of my time in the studio here doing that or going to other studios. But I work with a songwriter named Roger Street Friedman. Um, We put out four albums so far. We've been produced on the last two by Larry Campbell, who is the musical director for Bob Dylan and Levon Helm and uh, just really interesting Americana stuff. So I work with that songwriter. I have a group called Giant Flying Turtles, which is kind of a really esoteric, you know, odd music (laughs) kind of mixture of swing and progressive rock and freelancing. And then... I've kind of gotten away from any of the club dates and weddings and it feels good to really only take the things that, like you said earlier, that bring me joy, you know? So I love playing with musicians and that's what brings me joy as far as, you know, as a player in my, in my particular path in my journey, I still have a fusion band. So we're called one block East. We have um, our first record, over the pandemic, we recorded it remotely. Bill Ware on vibes, myself on drums, Rob Glick on bass, and Russ Palladino on sax, and this guy Eric Capers from uh, Pennsylvania on guitars. And we did it all remotely. And so I have this great love for fusion. And so I still keep my feet in that. And um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of been the journey. And, um, you know, all these bands keep evolving and changing. And you know, I love that. And, and it, the challenge for me is to keep it fresh and always to bring honesty, you know, from the drum kit. So I'm going to play for the music. I try not to ever make it something where I'm serving 
something that I want to wedge in there and play. I just play what the music asks me for, hopefully. And, um, you know, and just keep bringing joy and, uh, and spread that joy, you know? I think that's fantastic. Like as we were chatting about before we started this, it's important to kind of look at the things that you would like to do as a musician and really spend more time embracing the opportunities that fulfill your spirit, because it is very easy to get caught up in just filling the calendar and because yeah. we are both not starting out in our you know in our teenage years and things at this point we've been through all of those different paths and i yep. think it's fantastic that we've kind of found our own little directions here so i'm gonna have to reach out to you and, and pick up some of these albums that you've played on as well too because i look forward to checking out some of that stuff oh cool yeah yeah um and you know as far as roger street friedman the songwriter that i work with it's you know this interesting americana stuff we we're this year going to record the next record. Um, but the last one really just is such an interesting mixture of stuff. And there's sort of some historical, you know, sort of politically charged things in there. And uh, Roger was explaining the story of one of the songs on TikTok recently, of all places. And it's got almost, I don't know, 800,000 hits. Um, on this little video about this song. And so it's really interesting to see how people react to um, songwriting, you know, and, and sort of stories that come through the music. So it's, I'm proud to be a part of that. And it's also the interesting thing with playing with that particular band is that I get to play all different kinds of things, you know, sort of um, on one song, it might be, you know, sort of brushes and a, and a, a big jug of rocks or yeah. you know, a, a djembe and, and, uh, and half a drum kit or, you know, full on sort of funky groovy things, you know? So it's sort of fun to, um, to explore, you know, still getting excited about exploring stuff. There's one tune. Um, there's a documentary on YouTube. It's about 12 minutes about the last Roger street Friedman album. And there's one song where I'm playing a leather chair a djembe and my drum kit. And so it's, it's pretty interesting, you know, what you come up with in the studio, the leather chair sounds amazing on the, on the record. And there's, there's a sort of guitar interlude that would come up in the song. And every time it comes up, you hear this leather chair, the djembe and the drum kit. So it's, uh, you know, wearing your creative hat is uh, very satisfying, you know? Well, I know for me, one of the things that I started doing over the pandemic was learning how to record drums from home. And yeah. I'm no expert at this, but I'm finding great joy in terms of learning as you go. And what I found was it's changed what I hear because when you set things down and you're recording, you hear your drum kit and the drum kit sounds good. And you throw microphones on, you bring it up going, that doesn't sound like it does in the room. And it doesn't mean that it sounds bad, but it starts to inspire you to start experimenting and playing around with different things. I I own a few snare drums. And one of the things I always hated was like, you know, muffling and muting all of these drums because I like the drums to generally have a nice tone and live. I, I love that. But now I'm recording. I, I have so much stuff on my drums now because sonically it just fits into the context of some of the projects that I do. So it's, it's exciting 
to experiment and kind of learn and try things you never thought you would do and be blown away by the results. And sometimes the things you think are going to sound amazing sound totally inappropriate in the context for the recording. Right, right. Uh, you know, it's funny, speaking of things that you you never tried before, you know, on Roger's last album, we, um, you know, this is something you've seen on like, Alex Van Halen's kit, but we took, and, and this is an Americana group, mind you. So we're doing like mostly pretty mellow stuff, but, um, we took my 24 inch kit, uh, kick drum and we put it in front of my 22 inch kick drum. And then we put a sub kick in front of that. So we had this sort of layer of the two kick drums with the sub kick in front of it. And we were just going for like getting this really big sounding kick sound without doing a lot of processing. We just want to get it in the room. And, um, and Justin Gweep, who's a great drummer, um, was our engineer. It's really, so I'm so spoiled having a drummer as an engineer because he really knows how to bring the drums to the front of the, uh, of the albums. And, um, we got this crazy, great kick drum sound, um, on this record. And we, we layered these two sort of bass drums and it's not something that we're always pushing to the front of the tune, but, you know, that was something I had never tried before. On the last album, we did a Glenn's John setup with with the side-by-side overheads. Yep. Um, and I had never done that before. So that was really interesting to see that. And then in my studio, I mean, everything is closed mic multiple microphones sometimes. And now I have clouds on the ceiling, which are these um, floating clouds that kind of stop some of the reflection. And I mount... Uh, mics in the room far away from my kit to get some different sounds. So I have a, um, a room mic eight feet in front of my drum kit that I use just to get a little bit of um, reflection off of the wall. It's facing the wall, mm-hmm. the microphone, and it's getting some reflection back. So it kind of gives a little more depth to the room. So it's really fun to experiment with these these different things. And, um, and sure, different snare drums and different head choices. Um, so yeah, I, I love the whole process and, um, I'm most happy when I'm recording in the studio. I love playing live and I've, I've come back to gigs the last couple of months. I know that I've told you kind of, I had a year of, uh, health, uh, issues where I wasn't, I was not able to play for months, which was the first time in my life that I've ever gone through that, not playing for an extended period of time. And so coming back to some gigs has been really amazing. And I'm a little spoiled because I get to bring a drum tech and have somebody set up for me and getting transportation to my gigs uh, set up for me so that I don't have to deal with any of that right now, which is great. And I love to play live, but I am so happy when I'm in the studio recording. So, so one of the other things I wanted to ask you is that a few years ago, you released an exceptionally good drum book called filling in the grooves, which I, I got a copy from you and I've had it on my music stand on and off over since I've got it. And I just, I find it very inspiring. And one of the things that I like about the book is that it's basically a collection of different types of drum fills and in different styles, different genres, um, and then from some legendary musicians. But it's presented in a way that's practical. And as a teacher myself, one of the things that I always used to find frustrating is I would find a book and it would have a page of 16 different drum fills and they show you all the different variations. And I would play through them and I would think, 
14 of these I would never play in any context of a gig ever. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But because it was just mathematically figuring out how all the different variations are. And I, and I would found as a teacher, it wasn't inspiring me to give that to my students because I just didn't always see a practical approach to this. But I find your book does an exceptionally good job of actually showing you a, how you can practically incorporate these fills in a musical fashion, but also really push and challenge yourself. So what was the inspiration to the book? So, the, well, the first thing is when I was working with students and developing drum fills with them, I would write things down, but I would do this thing where we would play and we would do a call and response. So, and I was trying to get them to sort of memorize a whole bunch of different things in real time. So that was the first seed was planted where I was like, all right, let's lay down a groove together and I'm going to play a fill. You're going to copy it. So I, we know that we have it. And then we're going to cycle again and play it together. And then four bars later, I'm going to play another fill. I'm just going to improvise something and then you're going to play it. And then we're going to go back and play the first one and the second one. And so we were building this sort of thing where... I was getting students to like get five, six, seven, eight, sometimes 10 drum fills in a sequence that we were just making up on the spot. And I was like, man, like I really should start writing these down because we're, they're being played. We're not sitting there moving an accent every, you know, position of the, of the bar. We're actually playing things that, that I'm just coming up with on the spot. And then, so I started writing down the fills and then I was like, Oh man, I really should keep a collection of these and sort of write it from the point of view of me as a player. So when I play this particular groove, what are my, what are the things I like playing? What are some of my go-to things? And then some things, you know, we'd, I would just record myself for a couple hours and play through, you know, a particular style and see what would come out. And then I started transcribing that stuff. And I was like, all right, this, I showed it to Dom and he was like, do you have a book here? He's like, you definitely have to pursue this. And so I started pursuing it from that point of view of, all right, this is going to be motifs. So things that I play in this style, things that I play, which uses this particular tool. Um, so I started to kind of organize it based on either style, motif, or even a rudiment where it uses that particular rudiment, but not like me sitting there going, okay, here's the rudiment played this way. Now we'll move it to this drum. Now we'll move it to that drum. I was actually playing stuff that incorporated that and just recording myself improvising and then writing out the stuff that I liked the best or things that I knew I already used as a tool. And then, you know, I wanted to give tribute to all the drummers or some of the drummers that I was inspired. So I have that tribute section um, where I was transcribing, you know, fills from some of the greatest drummers in the world and the people that really inspired me in my style um, or to push my boundaries. So, and I tried to pick different guys. I mean, there's a, there's a million drummers that were inspired by, but I tried to pick some different genres. So I have Tony Williams in there, but I also have Ringo in there mm -hmm. and I have Billy Cobham in there, but I also have Stuart Copeland in there. So, you know, it's kind of, coming from a few different avenues um, and the stuff that I've grown up on. And I think if I ever do a volume two, which I'm not sure if I'll ever do, but I would 
put some other uh, drummers in there, some of the other guys that, that I'm inspired by. But I have started a second book. And this one is more... And Joe B said, I can't use this title for the book because there's something out there that uses part of this title. But I was calling it Philosophy um, with the word Philosophy. And this is a deeper dive into some of the concepts in the book. So where I'm really diving into the theory behind things. So giving this entire chapters of pre sort of requisite stuff where we're going through rhythmic examples that present sort of a foundation and then moving it to the drum kit. And it's not a beginner book um, by any means, but it's intermediate to advanced. And um, I've already written, you know, while I was kind of laid up and not being able to play, I was like, I might as well write. So I started writing this book. So I'm, I'm in a whole bunch of pages um, for this thing. It's not going to be the 165 that Filling in the Grooves is, but it, it will have play-alongs. And I, of course, have my Hand Technique Workshop book, which is now 110 pages. So that book, I think, is going to have to become a book because there's so many, there's so much material in there. I think it would be helpful to people. And so, you know, I think uh, there's a couple books in my future <laughs> soon, but the filling in the grooves is, is really was a labor of love. And I spent a lot of time on it. And, you know, that was when I was learning to film um, myself and I filmed all the clips in there in the studio and recorded all the audio in my studio and um, I think it came out, you know, really well with the video and the audio stuff. So if anybody has like the digital version of it on Hudson, the video and audio is embedded in the book. So you can just click on examples and see it or hear it. You know, it's sort of fun. What I liked about the book, once again, is that it was very musical and it really showed you not only how to expand your creativity and push your limits, but use them in a musical context. Um, I know a lot of students that I've had that are younger, one of the challenges that they have is they're taught the grooves and then they're taught the fills, but they don't understand that they're all part of the same thing and they need right. to work together. So they would kind of play the beat on the page, then they would kind of stop, then they would play the fill and then they would stop and then they go back to the beat. So one of the things that I started doing was I would get them to play a beat and then I would tell them that for this one bar, they had to keep playing the same beat, but they couldn't use any symbols. Right. So then, they, so then it forced them just to start moving on to different things, but still basically playing the beat. And that kind of introduced not the fill context, but it introduced the placement of the fill and that it has to fit into the musical context because fills can be really exciting and same with the grooves, but you have to put everything together to turn you into um, a musical player and a master musician. So I think you've done an exceptionally good job at this book and I definitely am intrigued and will support any other future books that you will put out at some point. Cool. I mean, I, I will, I will mention that one thing that stuck in my mind and it's in the book is when, you know, when you talk about being musical and playing what's right for the music, right? So, you know, obviously you're not going to play a Neil Peart, Tom Phil on top of a James Taylor tune, right? Like a ballad, you know, there's the right place, the right time for everything, right? And that's, that's a given. But one of the fills that, you know, this always stuck in my mind when I was recording with 
with that band Atomic Passion at, at like 16, 17 years old, the producer, Leo Adamian said to me, he goes, I love that fill that you did in, in, you know, the first tune on the record. And I was like, Oh, which one, you know, I'm thinking he's going to say something, you know, cool that I tried to execute or whatever. And he goes, when you go dot, 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 right. So literally <laughs> three snare hits, but I was putting a little drag in front of each one and I was, you know, not, I was just dropping the other hand on the head before each hit. So it was really going, ja, 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 right? But it's quick, like in the tempo. It's sort of like one, I don't know, 130, 140. So that always stuck in my mind, like, oh, he really appreciated just hearing, ja, da, da, dum, ja, dum, dum. And I was like, that was important lesson to me. You know, like, it's not about the spices and the sprinkles and you know all this stuff it's about what was right in the moment and you know learning that at a young age was you know sort of made me think like oh i can't be a selfish drummer and want to play all the stuff that we work on in the practice room you have to bring to the table what what is being asked for on the menu so that that's kind of where the book and i know there there's some real technical fills in the book stuff that I, you know, that I play, but there's always a foundation of musicality and purpose, I hope, and, you know, reasons to play certain things presented in the book. So, um, yeah, I appreciate that you, uh, that you saw some of that in there, you know, it really means a lot to me. One of the things that I've learned over the last few years, cause I've attended a few different drum festivals and some different workshops is I started to realize watching some of the greatest musicians out there that it wasn't always what they were playing that inspired me. It was the flow and the smoothness of how that they do things. And so it really made me start to appreciate the musicality of things more than the technical aspect. And yeah. so what I always find for me, I like when I'm practicing and learning, I, I like to challenge myself. I like to push myself. And at times it can get uncomfortable when you're trying these different styles and, and different genres. Some are better than others, but it makes the simplicity that much sweeter because you've yeah. developed a, a stronger facility and more control and more precision and flow in your playing. And I find for me, that's really what inspires me these days is just watching someone play something that's so effortless. And it's not always that what they're doing is complicated, but right. you can tell that they've invested the time to build the skills and to build the, the confidence so that they have the freedom and the control to make even the most simplest thing that much joyful. So I think that's really where the real value comes into play to push yourself. You may never play anything complicated, right. but by pushing yourself and allowing yourself to grow, it'll allow you to play the simplicity things that much better. And it's noticeable. Yeah. I mean, I, I always call like, um, you know, some of the, real technical exercises that we work on this idea of loading the bat. So if you ever see, you know, baseball players will put a bunch of weights on the baseball bat so that when they go up to hit, you know, the bat 
feels that much lighter and, and easier to move. So I kind of think about all that extra work that we do in playing the difficult things makes playing the easier things that much more effortless. So loading the bat is one of my, uh, my sort of things that I say to students, you know, just to give them an analogy. Looking at the challenges and things that you've been dealing with this kind of over the last year, and it's great to kind of have you back up and running. What are some of the things that are bringing joy to your life? these days? Wow. Um, well, I mean, I would say, I mean, over those months where I was really healing, um, from my surgeries and not being able to physically do the stuff that I want to do, you know, and I, I didn't ever stop playing really fully. I mean, I, I always have my pad upstairs in the house or I would come down to the studio and play a little bit when I was finally allowed to, but um, you know, so I kept my hands moving and stuff, but I took some time and actually did a little bit of, um, reworking in the studio. So that was one thing is kind of, I, I started thinking, well, I took this hiatus. When I come back, I want the studio to look a little different, feel a little different. I improved the workflow that much better. So I'm kind of getting ready to be back fully. And I figured, you know, once again, I want to create content. I want to do my podcast. I want to do more recordings, you know, so, and have the room, you know, look nice and sort of, I'm going to go through my cameras for you, even though people can't see it. Side view of my drums, beautiful, mm -hmm. beautiful overview. You could see all my offset pedals. That would have been my foot cam. My desk is a mess right now. There's my desk, but I, I sort of put a little time into the studio. So that's one thing that was sort of fun for me was I was like, well, I can't really play that much. Let me try to get some things done and, and, you know, hire, um, some people to help out and, and get things going. So I did that. And then, you know, I'm deep into, uh, meditation and mindfulness. And so that's something that's been really great for me is digging into my practice a little bit more as far as meditation. So i which I've been doing for many years, but over my, you know, my healing process that really helped me. And as you know, I have a, a big white fluffy golden doodle dog, uh, this huge dog that um, that I take every morning out. So I, when I was able to start walking again and going out for walks, you know, I would take the dog and like in the beginning when I was first healing, I can only walk maybe a block and then I would be totally out of breath and I couldn't go. And then so we would, you know, little by little start building up that, you know, the walking back to now, you know, three miles I'm up to again. I was doing six, seven miles um, before, you know, sometimes eight and then suddenly to have to start over and, you know, only be able to walk a block. And now we're, we're up to three miles. So, you know, I'm, I'm out with the dog every morning. So when I can, I'm out to see the sunrise and I do my meditation practice. And so that's something that's definitely brings me joy. And I'm starting to teach and coach again. And that's something that I realized I missed so much. Um, I really love, talking, connecting with other drummers and inspiring other drummers. You know, I have some students that are working on their first drum books. And so I'm helping them in that, you know, in that respect, or somebody's learning to use Sibelius so they can transcribe. I'm helping them in that respect. Then I have some students that are drum teachers that are like, Hey man, um, you help me with my tech, but my shuffle game sucks. Can you help me with my shuffles? And I'm like, Absolutely. So now I have tech slash drum students where we're, we're working on sort of, you know, 
an hour of tech and an hour of drumming. You know, we, we do these double lessons or whatever. So, um, I'm finding that to be super joyful. And, uh, last month I did my first drum clinic back for filling in the grooves since, since my surgery in December and my second surgery, which was actually in June, my doctor wasn't too happy with me, but I went out and did a clinic and, um, you know, uh, a room full of students, two different groups. And I was basically teaching some of the concepts from the book and every student that, that was there got a copy of the book. And, um, that was just super fun to do that. I was so happy to, to do the clinic thing again. So I missed that. And, um, yeah, all these, all these things, you know, you, I never take it for granted, but when you're doing it, you really appreciate the connection, you know, to people and drummers and that joy. So music can be such a healing thing and being part of the drumming community is inspiring because we all tend to come together. And when one of us is down, we all want to lift everyone up. And mm -hmm. it has been one of the greatest blessings in my life to continue to be part of this community and get a chance to interact with, you know, yourself and just all these other amazing people. And it's something I definitely don't take for granted. And I find to be a blessing every single day. Nice. If anyone's interested in reaching out to you, what's the best way to connect? Everybody can can reach out through social media, obviously. But um, my email, my direct email is is really the best way to grab me, which is um, jim.toscano.333 at gmail.com. My last name is T-O-S-C-A-N-O. Um, so jim.toscano.333 at gmail.com. Uh, or through my website, there's a form. So if you just go to jimtoscano.com, there's a contact form and I usually, it takes me an extra few days to, to go to that because I forget to check that one as often as my regular email, but I do check that and, or through social media, I get, you know, messenger, Instagram, you know, DMS, whatever, any way that you want to reach out. And, um, and sure. I mean, if anybody is looking for the, the technical stuff, um, if you're doing, you know, drum clinics, online drum clinics, absolutely. Uh, or any kind of drum lessons, of course, you know, so, um, or if you just want to chat about, you know, the business, um, I, and actually organizing your teaching business is something that I've been doing a lot of consultation on with people where I'm kind of showing how I schedule, how I bill, you know, we need to help each other with these skills. And I think, you know, as drummers and as musicians, Sometimes we're not so good at that stuff, you know, and it sort of gets forgotten. So I've been helping a lot of people organize their businesses, just I've been doing it for so long. And, you know, I enjoy kind of sharing all of that as well. It's always a pleasure to connect with you. I am truly grateful for all the things that you have done to help me out in the past. And I have this extensive list of growing questions that <laughs> I will definitely reach out to you at some point and get you to help me kind of take things up to the next level. I wish you all the best and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Thanks so much, Michael. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Drummer's Pathway podcast. Please share and subscribe to get the word out and let's keep the discussion going. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.